0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats.
1: Hi, this is Adam Penford, Artistic Director of Nottingham Playhouse. Welcome to the latest edition of our Amplify podcast. Our Amplify producer, Craig Gilbert, who usually hosts this series, is sadly now on furlough. Before he left us, however, he recorded some more wonderful conversations with some inspiring theatre makers. We hope you enjoy this latest episode. Hello Lucy, thank you for joining us today on the Amplify podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. What are you up to at the moment? What does social distancing look like for you? (laughs) Oh gosh, a complicated thing. Um...
0: You no, know, good good social distance walks, that's what I'm doing, uh, as many as I can. Um, I feel slightly that I'm breaking the rules, but it's for mental health, you know, so you meet with a friend and you walk two metres apart, that's interesting. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm giving myself too many tasks, uh, trying to read, trying to learn Italian, playing my flute, you know, it's ridiculous. It's a kind of... Uh, gosh, isn't. sounds use.
1: like a very full timetable.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to use the time, but in fact... Probably just flitting between too many
1: things and uh in terms of your work situation were you um were you on a hiatus anyway or have you lost some stuff as a result of the pandemic?
0: Yes, I mean probably three well all the projects for this year have gone, which there are there's my my current show that is running at the county hall, so that's witness for the prosecution um and that's on hold indefinitely we don't know we're waiting for Sunday really. For, for the Boris Johnson's announcements to start to feel our way towards a plan for reopening, but the optimistic uh, picture there is, I think we will reopen. You know, um, and then two other projects, yes, have been postponed in, or, or or have gone. <laughs>
1: Not sure. Um, yeah, it's a uh, very tricky times at the moment. Obviously, yeah. lots of uh, lots of people um, losing work and stuff. But let's talk of happier things. So, Lucy, tell me where are you, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Somerset, so
0: near Glastonbury in a little village.
1: And um, where did your relationship with the arts start? Is that in your background? Do you come from a theatre or arts family?
0: No, not at all. My parents were zoologists and taught zoology and then maths. And my father, then from being a zoology teacher, became a, a, a businessman working for Clark's, the shoe, uh, the shoe company in Street near Glastonbury. So the Clark's Limited. So <laughs> we had unlimited, uh, really boring shoes when we were when we were small. <laughs> but um, so from a sort of teacher background, I really, I, I feel, um, and not and yet both parents were were really supportive, enthusiastic, very cultured. You know, Dad would write plays, he'd paint. So there was a sense of uh, a love of the arts, absolutely. Even though they both would probably say they had come. To come down on the side of being scientists,
1: and where did your relationship with the theatre start?
0: Um, probably from you know day one. I think as kids we were. I was one of three sisters. We were you know, like many many children making up plays all the time. I think I led a almost ninety percent fantasy life up till the age of about thirteen. Um, so <laughs> really really lovely perfect childhood, free. You know, we had fields we could walk in. We didn't have to have parental. Uh, we weren't looked after we just went around in gangs from the from the village and we put on little plays from the age of I can't really say probably from four or five we were staging things with the older members of the village so we had a lovely really easy organic creative time without me ever thinking it was called theatre I didn't really wasn't really aware of theatre even in my my senior schools the the theatre department didn't really function that hugely in my life I didn't even know if it really particularly existed for me at the time when I became 13 or 12 really what took over was music and I took up the flute and my life was really about music from there on until about 17 and then things changed again
1: oh sorry just say that again you cut out for a moment
0: until at the age of 17 and then everything changed or really between 15 and 17 I think I was taken to my first play at Stratford and I saw Alan Howard's um, Henry V. I must have been about 15. And that probably is the marker for me where where life literally changed overnight.
1: And was that the point at which you decided, yes, I'm going to pursue this uh, as a career, as it were?
0: Not really. I just understood that something had massively switched on. I I think I became just aware of the spoken word in a way that where music had been everything. and sport, I was very sporty. But um, suddenly, this I mean, I was always good at English, but English was, in fact, it was my strongest subject. But it sort of suddenly became everything. So Shakespeare, poetry, it just all that light turned on. We still didn't really have theatre at my school. So it wasn't until my music teacher sent me in my gap year to, um, he got me in touch with Glyndebourne Opera House and I became a, a, a telephonist there for, for their season. So I literally answered telephones and that was that was when I was seventeen, turning eighteen. And again life took a massive leap. You know, that's when I knew what I wanted to be. I didn't even understand the word director. I had to ask somebody what's what's that person on the stage whispering in the singer's ears? I said, Who is he? And what's he doing? And they said, That's Peter Hall and he's directing the singer <laughs> and so I then said, I remember this so well, you know, I then said, Oh well, how do I do that then? And that's what I what 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 are the steps to, to get me to do that, and uh, and that that was the assistant director I was talking to, and he helped me understand what to do next, you know, which is called basically read a play. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, it was that I was that so I was so kind of um, what's the word tunnel visioned about music before then. So this this was a massive step for me to hear the sound of music, but within a dramatic context, and I have to say at eighteen. It was like a kind of, it connected to me with its whole erotic levels. You know, I would go around in this kind of ecstatic, erotic high, listening to all the music coming from the tannoy system that went all around Glyndebourne. So wherever you went, you could hear the singing from the stage. It was like a kind of mini paradise, or I compare it now to that film Cinema Paradiso. Oh, yes. It was. I was, I was older, obviously, but I would sit in the orchestra pit. I would go down underneath the stage and I would wait for the singer to come down in her petticoats and then I'd help her change you know and then I'd be at the side of the stage helping to hit the thunder drum or I'd sit in the lighting box or I'd sneak away from the switchboard in order to be at the back of the stalls Uh, I'd get told off but there I'd be found just watching Um, and this for me was as I say it was life-changing.
1: And so what are the steps from that life-changing experience in Glyndebourne to actually taking the first steps on your path to becoming a director
0: well i was lucky i was going to oxford to study english so in a way you know that's a kind of big privileged step um i didn't so the assistant director said well as soon as you get to oxford you find a play and you enter it into a competition called couples and bob's your uncle and that's what i did and i won that competition with a with the play the only jealousy of emma by (laughs) yates Because I happened to in wow. Yates that poem, so I just looked at the plays that he wrote, which were very esoteric, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <was really> hard. <laughs> I don't understand how, why I did that, but uh, and then from there on, I kind of forged a little path for myself at Oxford doing alternative theatre. What I would, I, I joined the experimental theatre club, and um, we worked in the Richard Burton rooms, which was this really like a studio room. So I didn't become part of the more mainstream poetry, which was Auds. I stuck ruthlessly to this path of thinking I was trying to do alternate theatre. I was was very naive. So I did plays by Picasso by Beckett um, and I, I, I looked for for, 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 for Yes, I look for anything that wasn't, at that point, Shakespeare.
1: Um, I've been asking everyone I have these conversations with when we talk about formative experiences and um, early making, as it were, where obviously at the moment everyone's stuck at home and the way we can make is limited and the way we can train is limited and the way we can see work is limited. But were there any particular books or resources that were important to you around that time that you think people uh, it would be good for people to have a look at now?
0: Oh gosh, so interesting! Because I've been putting back all my books together from all that time ago. Just recently, you know, while we were knocked down, um, and I came across things, you know, just the obvious ones like Peter Brook. I remember that being phenomenal at the time of reading that. The shifting point that he wrote after the empty empty space it was really important to me at the time, and other books like um, Towards a Poor Theatre. I don't know if you remember that book, Jerry Grotowski.
1: Yeah, Jersey Grotowski, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: and really important. I mean, this is a time when there was no training, so we were kind of starved of any way of understanding that directing was a craft that you learnt. Um, so anything that fed into that, like I read the book on Meyerhold by Rorne, I think it was, and I read uh, Artaud, about Artaud and his views of theatre, and Ingmar Bergman was important too. Uh, Even things like Theatre Games by Clive Barnes, no Barker I think it was, Clive Barker. You know I read avidly to try and find any way in to how you direct and I think there's a writer called Victoria Spolin who also did Theatre Games and ways of improvising. So I was very hungry to read anything, not that I made much sense of it, Um, but that was, you know, that was my desire. Impro by Keith Johnston, that was another book. No, so I read more then than I have ever since, because obviously, eventually you start doing it and you you, you just learn by doing it.
1: And you, you mentioned earlier that um, you were determined to make uh, what you termed as alternative theatre or what we would have termed as alternative theatre at that time in your life. What was it that drew you to that little bit of the world of theatre as opposed to uh, the more mainstream work?
0: I don't, I don't know. I don't know it may, it may have been some lack of experience you know lack of knowledge it may have been pure ignorance combined with arrogance you know that I had to be somehow cutting edge whatever that meant and I don't think I had any idea at that point um, but it, it I suppose it what it did was it drove me to eventually meet Samuel Beckett as a student that was pretty I don't I think that kind of courageous sort of questing feeling you don't really get at any other point you have to be 20 to be so bold as to write to Samuel Beckett and say, "Can I come and see you?" This was a man who was about to become a really moved towards being entirely a recluse, so very few people were ever meeting him, uh, and it was a privilege more than I can imagine for myself to be given to be granted that. So I did go to Paris and I met Samuel Beckett and I staged a play of his that was a prose piece that my tutor Francis Warner, who who was an incredibly big influence on me at the time, so he was a theatre he was an English don. At Oxford, who had written a number of Mm. plays and was fanatical about the theatre. And I think without that chemistry between him and me, you know, I may not have been able to get into theatre as quickly as I did. So he showed me how this prose, how this poem of Samuel Beckett's was in fact structured as five voices. It's not written so you can see that, but as soon as you analyse it, you realise there's five voices that go round and round. And then I thought to myself, I could dramatise. The play, the poem as a play with these five voices, and that's why I went to Paris. And Beckett gave Samuel Beckett gave me permission, which at the time was really unheard of because he not only gave me permission to do it, but to do it in any way I wanted. And I had described to him how I was going to design it. I'd spent weeks doing it, and he'd said it was completely wrong. You know, I showed him, I showed him my drawings. He said that's completely wrong, and then he told me exactly how he would stage it. And then he said, you know, with a real twinkle, he was a very funny, lovely, delightful man. But he then said, you know, you must do it the way you want to do it. And that apparently was, to all these other big, you know, theatre critics from all over the world, was quite a a phenomenal statement. So when I staged this at Oxford Playhouse late after the main show, I did this 20-minute piece by Beckett. I went to London and auditioned actors, brought these professional actors in. um, And it was a very ambitious staging with huge scaffolding and all across the cross. Anyway, after that, people would... I remember this German critic bouncing up to me and saying, you are a wunderkind. (laughs) 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 Went completely to my head um, and was disproved many times over after that. But, you know, it was a fantastic moment. Before I took my degree, there I was doing a world premiere of Samuel Beckett at the Oxford Playhouse. Um, Um, A very experimental piece it was. And that did, I suppose, sum up what I was trying to, what I felt I was at the time.
1: And uh, that was lessness, wasn't it, yeah. Samuel Beckett? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what are the steps after that and after your degree in terms of making your way as a professional director?
0: I did, when I went to London, I I had no contacts. You know, I, I didn't come from a theatre family, so I literally was sort of starting from scratch. I didn't know at all what to do. I remember looking through the Evening Standard, at you know, adverts saying, girls, 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 and thinking, well, that's perhaps what I should do to get my equity card. It was that, it was that silly, ring? Really. <laughs> I signed up once as an assistant to a magician until I realized that was a little bit compromising. Um, all, the, all these silly things. And along with that, I became a sort of assistant lighting designer to a dance company and tried to get in that way and sort of really stage managed. And then I eventually managed to contact Peter Hall. Jenny Hall, his daughter, had been one of my actors in Ness. Um, and had remained a friend, so I wrote to him. Um, I don't think he uh, he knew that connection, but I was given an interview, and that very interview, he said, "Would I like to become a second assistant on his musical, Gene Seberg?" So I remember bicycling back to my little bedsit in Clapham that that night in um, Camden Town, just sort of singing, and I was hysterically ecstatic, thinking it was such a big breakthrough, which it was. You know, so I got my foot into the National Theatre. I became Peter Hall's second assistant. And then later, I became his assistant at Glyndebourne, which was like a circle coming round. And it was in those, it was from yes, and from Glyndebourne, weirdly. Yes, I was I was really kicking off my music theatre and opera career at that point. But at the same time, I, I then I then interviewed at the age of I think twenty five and got into the Art Royal Shakespeare Company. So, I started a big sort of strand of my life, which was music, and then weirdly sidestepped into the Royal Shakespeare Company.
1: And did you do you go to the uh, RSC as an assistant, or were you yes. were you making shows at that point?
0: Well, they took uh, two assistants each year, um, mm-hmm. become their their two staff directors. So, I was with Jude Kelly, who was a bit older than me, quite a bit older than me, and really knew what she wanted to do. I was in awe of her, really, because I I was still just floundering. I felt um, very sort of green. Um, I think it's not having theatre training, it was difficult. You know, you I'd assisted Peter at Glyndebourne, yes. But uh, I still felt very inexperienced. So the RSC was a, a, a big, big step and a huge privilege because they they, they interviewed hundreds of people and you, you and was selected only two. So you know, it was it was a it was a, a big achievement, I suppose. Um I'm not sure I made the best of my time there. I don't think at that time they were not it was much more hierarchical than it than it is now so as an assistant you weren't necessarily given a leg up you know you 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 were expected to assist and then move on there wasn't really a structure which allowed you to have a platform Uh, I think we're so much more conscious now and I certainly am if I'm working with an assistant director I want that assistant director to become a director and I want to find a way to promote and help that person become a director Uh, but in both at the RSC and at Glyndebourne, you kind of had had almost professional assistants. They existed and they'd assist all their lives, particularly in opera. So you see, there wasn't quite that pathway uh, at the time. And when, when this was the, eight, the mid, eight, mid to late 80s. It changed very rapidly after that, I think.
1: So the point I'm... So making... how...
0: Yeah, sorry, Craig, go on.
1: No, I was, going to, I was just going to ask, but please come back to your point. I was just going to ask, how did you follow that path for yourself?
0: Well, I think I just... I was very dog determined, you know. I'd met an actor at um, the National when I was assistant at Seaburg. He got in touch with a. He was working with a young writer called Dot Rubin. Uh, I got in touch with Dot. We became firm friends, and you know, I tried to put on these plays in any little cranny I could in London. Um, and then I, by I can't, I'm trying to remember how I did this, but after the RSC, I oh I know before during the RSC I was I was asked if I could. Work at Dartington, and this was a very big thing that happened to me. I worked with Harrison Burtwessel, the composer. He needed a sort of young assistant who was a director to help him work with actors and singers in stage in, in looking at workshopping material that could be staged. So he was looking for how do you put music with action? What are, what, what are the key ideas here? How does music work? How does it liberate action? Which of course was fascinating. And working with him was again working what I felt was like on the very edge of the avant garde. And he taught me more in those two weeks than I think I'd learnt for many, many years, um, just in terms of how to be economic in the use of sound and what sound can do to space and time. Um, And I was about, I I was just, I'm trying to really place when this was. It might have been just before I went to the RSC. I worked with Harrison and that must have come out of my working with Peter at uh, Glyndebourne. There must have been some link there. So that what that did for me was at, at at the RSC when it came to putting on a little festival which I kind of got together with Jude so let's get let's get our work there for 2 weeks and get the actors who haven't been given big parts let's have a festival that's that gives them um, a moment of taking the stage. We put that little festival together and I chose to do a music theatre piece. I commissioned david sawyer who's now a very well-known uh composer and i commissioned him to work with me on a on a scottish ballad and to work with the actors in mask it was all very experimental <laughs> so i was working with people <laughs> like neve cusack but they're all moved, masked up he <laughs> wouldn't know it was <laughs> and i did this mad weird piece but which i was very proud of and from there on i, I then was invited by harrison burtmissall to direct uh Music theatre pieces for his South Bank Festival, and I, I started to to really work with new music theatre pieces. I went to Germany and Italy and different places working on avant-garde music theatre, which you can imagine was exciting. And I kind of lost sight of my RSC background, and that, that didn't come that didn't come back until I met Mark Rylance uh, in the late in the late nineties.
1: I I'd be fascinated to know because uh, obviously you are you're a hugely prolific director you've directed tons of brilliant productions but from that beginning in the in the sort of the avant-garde high art world of theatre how what's the progress how do you get from there to to doing some of the work you're doing now which is essentially reinventing uh the plays of Agatha Christie yeah
0: Strange, isn't it? I think it's a, it's a story like many, Many, I, I suppose it's a mix of um, opportunity and then the slight frustrating thing of being kind of typecast a bit, you know, so and not necessarily being able to sort of trying to be opportunist with those typecastings. So, so for that time, I was doing avant-garde music theatre. That's what I was doing. But I switched back in the early 90s. I had a kind of big crash. And I was working at the English National Opera, and it was my first opera there. And to cut a long story short, it all went a bit wrong. And um, a big fallout from from that, I got very bruised. And there were several things that happened then. I decided to have a child, uh, which was life-changing, of course, again. This was a a big marker for me. And then I decided to go back into theatre. I don't think it was as simple as saying, I decide. I simply... There was an opportunity. I I met Mark Rylance, and he invited me to work with him at the very very first pre year of the Globe's existence. You know, creating a mask for the Queen and doing sort of strange work towards the Globe's opening. And in the first year of the Globe's opening, I I directed the Mage tragedy by by Beaumont and Fletcher. So Mark was massive in my life. He sort of literally took me under his wing, uh, and I have him to hugely to thank because at the same time as I did that I went back to base to base roots with my music theater directing I decided that I wanted more wanted more authorship over the work I didn't want to work in opera where the hierarchies are so firm so so inflexible you know it really starts at the top with the music and then further down is the production I wanted as a director to have more control I also wanted Music to speak to more people, and not to feel like I was playing to a sort of ghetto audience. So I wanted to break out from that very narrow contemporary music audience that I was. My pieces were playing to, so I formed what was called uh, the group was called the Gogmagogs, and that was a company of very young string players. And this was a, a massive thing in my life. It took over for the next twelve years. I was co-artistic director with Nell Catchpole of this wonderful group of sexy young players who were brilliant and could do anything. And we made this very physical, joyous ensemble where where I created my own sort of exercises, my own disciplines in how to connect up movement, the the cellist or the viola player or the violinist or the double bass player, moving and playing brilliantly at the same time. So we were physically brave. We added words. We worked with writers, Carol Churchill. Uh, We worked with novelists and and biologists. And we worked worked with... uh, composers from around the world to create the pieces that we did over the over those next 11 years but what it was for me was working with the performer in the rehearsal room so the the in opera i've been working majorly with designers creating these massive things very visually i hope brilliant but suddenly i was back to working really with the performer and that's what mark rylance did too so working at the globe meant that i was back in touch with just working with the actor so it was a huge learning curve for me suddenly i was sort of doing what i In a way, should have been doing years before, just working in a rehearsal room with performers. Once on one side it was musicians, on the other side it was actors, and and working with contemporary to Shakespeare texts, but also Shakespeare, because I did As You Like It the following year. Um, so I'm trying to say it's a long answer to your question, Craig. So I I I set off on these two paths: the Gogmagogs and the Globe. The Globe very quickly led to other things. I, I I I looked at other texts. I found I discovered Tennessee Williams. I did Baby Doll at Birmingham, then went to the National and then went to the West End. Um, So suddenly my whole play career was taking off. The Gogmagogs were still very much part of my life. So I was doing these kind of maverick work between music and theatre. And then after the theatre world really taking off, I then formed, as part of that, I sort of came to the end of the Gogmagogs in 2007 and then formed the print room.
1: Yes, I'd lo- I'd love you to talk about the the print room because it was uh, there were there were a couple of years um, I think when you first founded that theatre where it was it was it was the most exciting theatre in London and like and everything was brilliant and and yeah, yeah please yeah. talk a little bit about uh, founding of that uh, that theatre and and the space and the work you did there.
0: Yes, well it was a dream come true in one sense because uh, my partner in crime was Anna Winters and she was. Uh, but, but she was, in a way, an arts philanthropist, as well as desiring to be an arts producer. And her background was in design. Um, but she hadn't worked particularly professionally within theatre. But she was a, a, a very dear friend. And we, I was desperate, for, as I said to her, I remember at the time, I said, I'm just desperate for a home. You know, I want a base. I've never been an associate director anywhere. I haven't had any affiliations with any theatre, apart from being an assistant. Uh, and that was a big... Sense of loss to me at the time that I hadn't uh, managed to have the camaraderie of developing a kind of family rather like you have, Craig, at Nottingham. Um, mm-hmm. Ever since sort of Glyndebourne, which had been like a family, I hadn't really had that. So to form, to, to, to find a space as we did, which was the print room in Notting Hill, and to create a theatre out of that was uh, something I had craved. Um, it didn't last long. Whilst it lasted, it was perhaps some of the most exciting work I felt I'd done, because partly because you're given a tiny space and to do work in a tiny space is much easier than to do work in a big space, obviously. And partly because I was my own man up to a point in that I could select the plays. And at the time, we didn't have much money, We obviously. We were sort of strapped for money. At the same time, I was not quite sure what kind of money we had because it was majorly funded by Ander, So it was a kind of difficult and delicate relationship as you can imagine so mm-hmm. sort of going well I think we should be doing this unknown Tennessee Williams play um, and I think it needs this amount of money you know uh, we were looking for other co-funding partners all the time of which we did gradually uh, find um, but but anyway the work that I managed to do those four plays and the colleagues that I managed to put in place there was some of my I think my proudest moments
1: yeah, and it was it was such a varied programme work of work there as well. Did you have um, an artistic policy as such, or was it literally just these are the plays that interest me right now, and these are the ones we're going to do?
0: No, we both we both had an artistic, quite a strong artistic policy. We wanted it to be eclectic. We wanted to. I want. Um, I particularly wanted to juxtapose work like Pasolini and Aikman, and mm-hmm. so that you can put these people together, and it's exciting. It's it's what we should be doing you know I didn't want to sort of have a one colour season I wanted really different voices that nobody had heard in this way so we did unknown eight one and we did obviously Pasolini who who nobody's <laughs> nobody's seen a play by Pasolini in in the UK at that point point. Uh, and then of course we varied it too with with Chekhov one of his most popularly done pieces Uncle Vanya and Tennessee Williams a very unknown piece and other other pieces not not directed by myself but again we chose because they were so uh they somehow felt right if you see what i mean we looked for pe- pieces that had had been written but hadn't been done um and that was our our kind of approach it didn't exclude new pieces but we 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 knew we had this kind of we could mine material there was so much material there that we could look for uh, that had, that that this space could offer an, a a really great dynamic for, um, so that was our approach, and we wanted also to mix in exhibitions and dance pieces and music theatre pieces, so that again we and and little weeks of concerts and little weeks of poetry, so that the audience was forever on their toes, but completely would trust that whatever they came to had a kind of vibrancy. And I think we achieved that in quite a short time, which was impressive. And I'm I'm sure the Coronet has gone on to, to do that too. You know, it's still, there is a legacy there. They're still doing quite, you know, interesting
1: work. I wonder if we can just switch focus a little bit and talk about process. Yeah. Can you tell us what the first week in your rehearsal room looks like?
0: Well, it changes and it's changed over the years and it's, dif- it's different depending on what play I'm doing. So if I'm working on Shakespeare, the first week is a real mix. It's a mix of engagement with the text, but it's also a huge kind of leap into improvisation and creating the world of the play. It's partly because I with shakespeare i have i think I have a massive connect up for me, and I think he's he's so he's so brave in his ideas, but you have to work very hard to really honor what he's about you know and um when I do find a sort of world of the play, I need the actors to feel as confident in that world as because i've I'll have lived in it for much longer than them, and I need them to access that uh so I think You know, again, it changes depending on each rehearsal period. But improvisations about that world were where I would go for that first week, along with a kind of more sit-down text engagement. But I don't sit down for very long. I I really try to get things on the feet. And I try to get things sort of physicalised as much as intellectualised. And I think you have to have a bit of both.
1: Can you um pick an example and just talk a little bit about the use of those improvisations? Um
0: let me think. Yeah, I, I with say so with Titus Andronicus which I did at the Globe, I spent an awful long time actually too much on the first act because I felt the political environment of that play was crucial to what it released uh, in terms of the violence and savagery. Uh so the fact that the city was at boiling point when you hit the beginning of the play was to me very crucial. So I looked at that boiling point. So the boiling point is about two factions, two, two sons. So already you've got, Shakespeare's very clever, You know already you've got a, a dysfunctional family who are the sons of the emperor who has died. And those sons are fighting. You look at what those tensions are between two gangs of very testosterone men. And it's a bit like when you go to the Paolo in Siena now, you know, the big race that happens. If you've ever Mm -hmm. seen it, oh my God, it's amazing. You go as a tourist and you stand in the center of the square and it's vaguely full and it's exciting. And you're surrounded by people in light colored clothes and bottles of water and blonde hair, you know. And then the next second, just before it starts the race, the locals pour into this central bit. And then suddenly you are... Really crowded, the air is heaving with with masculine <laughs> um, um excitement um and i I found that a real key and a real turn on obviously to what to and pride this pride and this this sort of ferocity that you get with these races where there's fights that go on you know the jockeys are sometimes punched up if they lose that kind of access of Italian temperament and passion uh really informed the the Starting point improvisations of uh, Titus, and then I would introduce the next tribal thing of Titus, which is of course the the Italians, the Romans, the Romans who are a mixed. It's very intercontinentally mixed Rome. It's an incredibly ebb and flow of different nationalities in Rome, but also their uh, antagonism to the Goths. So you then have this other tribe called the Goths. So we worked a lot on that kind of tribal uh, identity, and it really didn't form. As I say, I almost worked too much on that first act because the staging of it was very complex. But it it informed the atmosphere and the temperature of everything that went on afterwards.
1: Brilliant. Well, um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Lucy. I just have a couple of very quick questions to finish off, if that's all right.
0: Um, Craig, I didn't really finish the question about how you get from being experimental to Agatha. Did I actually answer that? I just felt I sort of, I got sort of bogged down with actually where my career choices went after that but I think I was trying to go that actually your career choices are such a whimsical thing because once the print room collapsed I became a man for hire and when I became Mm -hmm. a man for hire some of the plays I chose were again sort of they resonated with the print room in the sense I looked for sort of a, a a new approach to some some more tried material so I looked for a new approach to thrillers it's just something I really related to I've always related to page turners even with Uh, my work at the Globe so so that then just became something that people knew me to do and it was then what I was asked to do so in a funny way you know your your career can be forged a little bit but I've I've found it just responds to fortune as much as anything else.
1: Yeah um, that's that's really clear and um, so tell me um, how so how did your relationship with um, those those thrillers begin in terms of making them for the theatre I mean um, was it literally just a call from a producer one day who said would you like to direct um for Murder or?
0: No it was really it went back to doing Doll' at the National. I, I, I had found that film script and then I adapted it by using various other of his drafts he wrote it as a play later as Tiger Tail so I then adapted it myself to become the play this play that we did for Birmingham National and the West End and it was a great sort of breakthrough for me it was maybe my most it should have been a huge turning point in my career I don't think it was unfortunately but that kind of should have been because of the response we got um and after that I then turned to look for another play that I could do with Charlotte Emerson who was my star of Baby Doll. and we found a script at the bottom bottom drawer of Andrew Rattenbury's the writer Andrew Rattenbury had the script The Postman Always Rings Twice his ad- adaptation of the novel and when I looked at that, I thought, oh, my God, this, this is perfect for Charlie, for Charlotte, and perfect for me. So then we did The Person Always Rings twice, and we did it at Leeds, and it went to the West End with Val Kilmer. And that kind of kicked off my interest in thrillers. Um, so from there on, I was always looking for the next thriller that would interest me. And it was my agent, Penny Wesson, who said, oh, I've just, <laughs> I've just read Dialogue for Murder. It's brilliant. You should... <laughs> So I just read it and I went, "Oh my God, it's brilliant!" You know, and I can do something with this really sexy, uh, and and sort of left field um, with that. Not, I didn't approach it conventionally, but um, and then from there on, it just was a matter of looking for thrillers that I could do the same for. And I think it was my reputation in in approaching thrillers that made Eleanor Lloyd and Rebecca Rebecca Stafford ask me to do Witness for the Prosecution. You know, that's, that then leads to a whole other door opening in terms of other Agatha Christie's I'm meant to be doing and then there were none this year. That was one of the shows that's been postponed.
1: And Witness for the Prosecution has, has been running for a long time now, hasn't it? Mm. It's been on for three years, four years?
0: Two and a half years.
1: Yes, yeah, that's, that's it. That's, it really that's with, with the uh, lockdown. That's incredible. Um, Lucy, can I ask you, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind?
0: Oh, gosh, that's really hard. Did, does everybody struggle with that one?
1: Yes, part- and I never tell any. I never tell anyone in advance because I want the instinct.
0: Yeah, it's partly because of COVID, and fun enough, I'm not sure it blew my mind, but the last piece of art that um, there's two. How do I do this? The two things of COVID that, that have just really hit me in a way that I hadn't realised they would hit me. One was Jane Eyre that the national screen, and I hadn't caught it. Just the freshness of that approach really. I just it just woke up something that maybe I'd forgotten. Um, and then the other is a chamber film oh, by... Talk,
1: talk, more, talk more about that. What do you mean, woken up something that you'd forgotten?
0: Well, I think the freedom to, to, to tell a story with very minimal means, the, the, tr- the trust in how you're going to develop that story uh, and allow the audience to come with you, to, just on the strength of the... Of, mainly on the strength of the, the engagement of actor and text... Actor and narrative that sort of took me back to something which really I said, I mentioned to you when I started at the Globe in the late 90s you know it the, the being in the rehearsal room with the actor just that is really what and where it happens uh, it happens hugely for me too in my relationships to my designers uh, lighting sound and set but the core is the freedom of how you can express narrative And Sally Cookson and her wonderful team of actors really did that for me. So that was surprising and I found myself very emotionally moved by it. And that's my COVID little moment, along with Polanski's film, Knife Knife in the Water. It's a three-hander film. And this is perhaps the other side of everything I'm interested in, which which is the strength of naturalism, the strength of deeply psychological veracity so these two are pole opposites a Jane Eyre and knife in a water but polanski in this three-hander film uh, as, achieves this astonishing tension and I think that's something i've always been interested in in my work in thrillers and everything is how you achieve this physical sexual mental tension uh that that pervades polanski's work uh you know he is a genius so those two have been the the big things, I think, in the last two two months.
1: And finally, can you recommend something for us all to enjoy while we're social distancing?
0: <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's really hard because your mind goes, oh, I've got gardening and, you know, <laughs> <playing your> flute. <laughs> <laughs> so many things, what can I say? Um, what can you really say? Social distancing, I'd say put social distancing to a test and go for a long, long walk with a <laughs> mate and talk about the world because I think one's conversations at the moment are different and I've really enjoyed that.
1: Excellent. Well, Lucy, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, Craig, you've been brilliant. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.